Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Well, around about a half a century ago, there wasn't too much talk about training zones and RPE and zones one, two, three, four, and now five, six, and seven. And there was all sorts of theories around training that came from people like Arthur Lydiard, which we'll talk about very shortly. But uh, today, our subject is all about what the pros do in terms of training. And it's a fascinating subject because there are so many different sports which you can apply different training methods to. And uh, whether you're dealing with cyclists or speed skaters or endurance runners or short distance runners, the times and the training that they do is obviously something which most of us uh, probably look at and go, I'll never be able to do that. But at least we can take some of the principles of what they do home to our own training and the way that we also do our own sport. And also it allows us to see a little bit about um, the, the methods and what dedication it takes to actually train. Now, Professor Ross Tucker, as usual, is here with me. And the reason why I find this subject so fascinating is because as an amateur sportsman, and many of the people who are listening to our podcast will probably be amateurs, it's very easy to understand the theory behind good training, but it's very difficult in many cases to put that theoretical training, the good training, into practice in our normal training lives. And for example, if you're a cyclist and you're going to train like a professional, you have to spend a huge amount of time riding slower than you would probably normally ride which kind of sounds a bit counterintuitive. And I guess it's the same for runners and anybody participating in any endurance sport. Having the self-discipline, having the focus and not being drawn into events or rides that are on runs that are too hard is obviously very difficult when you're normally amateur person. But when you're a professional athlete, obviously every training second, every training hour matters more than it does to us. The paradox being that because it matters more, you actually train easier. Yes. Yeah. So, because, because I mean, we're in the situation, we ride, and we don't have much discipline. No. Uh, if we, we feel, If we feel good, we go, and fast is relative, but we go faster. And if we don't, we slow down, and we get sucked into races with people who join us that we shouldn't, and we don't take easy days when we know we should because we're riding with mates and so on. Yeah. So, so we overdo it because we don't... Uh, have the incentive not to. Yeah. And I think it's arguably true that most recreational athletes with some aspiration for performance tend to err on the side of overtraining. I think that's unquestionably the case. And it is a lot more boring than they would think because our perception might be that if I want to improve, I must go hard and I must constantly challenge myself, overload the physiology and force myself into adaptation. And in fact, that adaptation happens without pain sometimes and suffering. And like we said, you know, any fool can suffer. But the problem is the system, the physiology can only suffer for so long before we fail. And so I think most people who listen to this who are not elite and they're not trying to win anything or qualify for some age competition, just people who want to go out there and perform strongly and solidly are probably 
permanently on the cusp of overdoing it and overtraining. Because it's not so much overtraining as it is training not in the right way. I'm trying to think of a better way to say that. But mm. it's the hours that they would spend training might is way less than a professional athlete would by, be. By much. By yeah, much. By a lot, yeah. So it's not that the hours they're spending we're doing as amateurs is more than the pro, but it's the kind of training that we do which affects us, which causes this overtraining syndrome because there's not enough time, we think, to train like a pro. Yeah, and, and we don't recover well because we don't have – the the luxury it's not a luxury when you're a professional athlete it's a necessity to us it would be a luxury to have a six hour nap or afternoon off between training sessions yeah uh, morning session afternoon session that's what the elites do twice a day we don't have that opportunity so of course we train much less i mean i was looking at some professional cyclists they would regularly be doing 30 hours a week at <sighs> peak and in the range of a thousand to twelve hundred hours a year yeah. Probably in total because they'll have highs and lows. Um, runners, there's been a paper recently which is one of the triggers for this podcast, and they've described in 59 elite distance runners ranging from track all the way to marathon that their average training time is 400 to 700 hours a year. That's running. We know from our Winter Olympics discussions that elite cross country skiers and biathletes are doing in the range of a thousand hours a year as well. So that's huge volumes. Most people listening to this would be happy with uh, 400 hours a year, and that would be a big year for them, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, I, um, it's, it's, it's not a volume issue alone, and mm. it's not an intensity issue alone. It's the way we can holistically package the elements together. So we, we talk about how often do I train per week, frequency or month? How many hours do I train per week and thus per session? And then how do I put those hours together? And that's the intensity question, which is where mm-hmm. I think most of the interesting stuff here lies. Yeah. Well, let's, I mean, let's have a look at the history of what we call training regimes. Now, my memory, the father of sort of training regimes is Arthur Lydiard, who obviously was a, a marathon runner. And uh, when he was training, he was a proponent of big distance. So the more you ran the better you'd run. And I think to some extent back in the 50s and 60s, that was probably the the the, the method that most of the athletes followed. The, the more you trained, the better you became. And obviously you did. But as we progressed into the 80s when heart rate monitors started coming out and then the 90s and early 2000s, we started getting power meters on bikes. That, wasn't, that was only obviously in the cycling side, but in all the other sports, lots of new technology coming into that space. We've, we've got to know better about the body and how it operates. Is it fair to say that we're at the 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 limit of what we know about physiology or do you feel that we are still early days in terms of the fact maybe five years down the line we'll say wow we didn't know that about the body or do you think we the the, the science that that is out there now is pretty conclusive as to how the body operates no it's it's never conclusive i mean we'll always learn more and we'll learn subtleties and there'll be incremental gains and evolutions in knowledge. But I do think, and I mean, maybe this comes back to bite people sometimes. I don't know what they were predicting in 1920 something, 100 years ago. But I think we're close enough to know the principles in play. And now it's really around the margins that we're mm. working. And that's why when we start talking about Lydiard, and then we can look back at the at the decades in between and, the, and there've been evolutions, but they always come back to the same principles. And in fact... When you look at the studies that have been published recently and the way that long distance runners and cyclists and speed skater, we'll talk about later, present their training, they're actually compliant with the same principles that informed what he did. 
And so I don't think there's a, it's not like we're inventing rounder wheels. <laughs> we might be better at using rounder wheels, but we're not improving the actual material, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah so I mean, there's always going to be margins and, and space to improve our knowledge. There have been some really interesting debates in the last couple of months around which of the training models is better when it comes to how we construct a, a training cycle, you know, based on intensity. Um, and so the fact that there's disagreement means there's room to learn. Mm. Otherwise, there wouldn't be disagreement. We all agree that the world is round. <laughs> Maybe some wouldn't. Um, so so for sure, there's there's interesting stuff. But I think... I said it earlier in the podcast, people would be surprised at actually how boring it is. When you look at the training of an elite athlete, it's it's not gimmicky and it's not fancy. It's just due time. Yeah. That's what it boils down to. Yeah. Mm. I think was, I mean, just as a complete aside, I'm always quite fascinated by the, particularly in the cycling world, where they talk about how the Italian riders train there's this kind of scattergun approach to i don't think it applies to all italian cyclists but i think there's there's not necessarily the attention to scientific detail that we see and have seen from potentially the british system which is more scientific in the way that it's structured and there's obviously something to be said for the passion and the enjoyment of getting out there because i think that to some extent if you're stuck in this paradigm of having to go and do the same session every single day as we would be if we were trying to train like pros we would get bored off after a while, as you just said, but there is some motivation in the passion of the sport that you do, um, which I find interesting um, because I always wonder how many of the top riders in cycling do we see at the top level that are training as scientifically as others in the peloton and how much better or worse are they because of that? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned this in our podcast a while back. I was at this conference in Boston and Alan Lim was speaking and we were talking, he was talking specifically then about the gadgets that are available to monitor training and the data that we can use. And I sort of cheekily asked, okay, if we could take all the best of those gadgets and drop off a bunch of them in the Great Rift Valley in Eldoret, where all the Kenyans are training, how much faster would they honestly get? Like, yeah. What do we really think those things ma- matter? And he sort of stared at the ceiling for 10 seconds and said 3 4%. So wow. on a marathon, he thinks, it's, he thinks it's quite a lot. The other people on that panel weren't as... Um, confident in the size of that but I think they made the good point that more athletes would probably succeed because I think I think to some extent endurance training is is attritional mm. you know it's not like the old chuck a box of eggs against the wall and see which one survived but the the, the whole process of it is that it's how much time can I do at the right intensities before I either break down or overtrain mm. and I think that Modern knowledge helps people pull back from that ceiling before they bash up against it, right? Mm. So I would imagine the main changes, and this is where the coaches, because I'm not at the coalface um, in, in, in the elite world of sport anymore. The main changes, I think, are people are now more aware of what is coming. And these knowledge now has a predictive value. Mm. And so we can say that these runners or cyclists are training at a level and an intensity, total workload that is excessive, and we can't get away with that for too much longer, pull them back. And the consequence of that is that they, they're always close to perfect. Mm. Whereas in the past, you'd had to make mistakes before you knew you were, you know, you'd have to get lost in order to figure out where you were going. Now you know exactly where you're going because of Google Maps. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I mean, if you look at that and you use the example, I mean, it's a good example of the the Kenyans and there are literally thousands of very talented Kenyan runners out there as you see in the Kenyan trials every single year. You compare that to potentially Western countries which have access to much more science, the Kenyans are still kicking ass on the, on the, on the road running yeah. front. Mm. And that's largely because of physiology. Uh, yes, and, and, and a significant amount of acquired wisdom. Yes. It's easy to look at them and say, you know, these guys just wing it, but they actually don't. They've mm. they've learned over 20, 30 generations worth of good runners. You know, if if, if you think that the turnover times every couple of years, <laughs> since the 1970s, they've been learning and they've been observing. And if as long as you're systematic about it, you don't need computers and mm. gadgets and all kinds of uh, 2022 technology. A piece of pencil, a piece of paper and a pencil might be all you need. Yeah. So and as, as you'll see in this discussion today, yeah, there are some examples where we can see very w- well-known Kenyan runners abiding by the principles mm. of modern science. And so the coaches that have, that have learned through experience and what is effectively trial and error and experiment, success and failure, and they reinvest that from one generation to the next, that over decades starts to become quite a powerful and large source of uh, intellectual capital as yeah. it were and so i don't think you know it is it is easy to lapse into like we've got all the knowledge and technology in the world and they're a little bit clueless but i don't think it's always like that i do think that you can take equipment there that like maybe looks inside the metabolism and the lungs the heart and so on and you can measure things and you can make tweaks to the way a person trains and the way that they especially recover. Mm. And that might unlock 1% or 2%. And that's the difference between being a 207, running a Vienna or a Rome marathon, as opposed to a 204 and being in Boston and Chicago and New York and London. So arguably it does help, but I think I think it's easy to polarize, um, mm. excuse the pun, the, the knowledge as well as the, 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 the training mm. yeah. <laughs> patterns, yeah. So let's d- dig into it, and we're going to get into some of the re- more recent research that's come out about it. But let's just define, and in broad strokes, what I know about zone training. So for those of you who do any sort of endurance exercise, you'll understand that there are zones 1 to 3, 1 to 5, 1 to 7, depending on which uh, training platform you're on. 1 would be easy, and 3 to 5 to 7 would be hard. Um there are obviously different dynamics and different physiological um, changes that happen inside those zones. Traditionally, we have seen over the last decade that people have talked a lot about in the popular sort of fitness press, and we know that we do this in runners world and bicycling, that it's about what we call polarized training. In other words, you're going hard for a short amount of time and you're going easier for a longer amount of time. What are the other options available when you talk about training? We know about polarized. It's very well documented. Mm. What other training models are there? So the the premise behind all of these is how do I allocate my time and volume to intensity bandings, yeah? Mm. Now, if I can take one step back, the easiest way to think of this is to imagine training can either be hard or easy. So you ask a runner, how is today? Easy. How is today? Hard. <laughs> if he alternated days, Monday easy, Tuesday hard, Wednesday easy, forever, his training would be split 50-50, hard and easy, mm. okay? Now, what's been proposed based on observation and theory is that 80% should be easy, 20% hard. Um, and that, that creates the polarized model. But now, there's not only two zones. There's 
physiologically. The idea being that you only operate in those two zones and there's none of the stuff in between. Right. So where the polarized concept comes from is that you're at one end or the other, but not in between. So now there's not only two zones because otherwise there'd be nothing in between them. Yeah. So there is a bit in between and that's the, call it the intermediate zone or heavy exercise, but not severe as opposed to easy or moderate, right? So you've got zone one, two, three. So polarized means I'm heavy on the low zone, zone one, which is light exercise, what I would describe as easy. And I'm doing some work at the high intensity zone, zone three, but as little as possible in the middle, right? So that's what that looks like. So imagine very tall skyscraper, nothing, short skyscraper. <laughs> yeah. Now imagine one where you go very tall, medium, short. That's called pyramidal because it's a pyramid, basically. We do a lot at the low level, we do a little bit more at the middle, and we do the least at the top. Does that make sense? Right. So we go, let's say, 70%, 20%, 10%. Right. Still adds up to the 100, but we spend a little bit more time in the middle than we would have done in a polarized model. Mm-hmm. And then you get another model, and there have been a couple of, and, and sorry, and those two models are the ones that are the subject of this recent debate that was in this journal, Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise. And we had certain protagonists of the polarized model, Stephen Seiler being one of them, yeah. Norwegian one based, US heroes, born. Yeah. Yeah. Carl He's Foster. He's almost the father of polarized training to some extent. Right. So back yeah. in 2002, three, four, thereabouts, let's call it 20 years to be general, <laughs> he wrote some papers where he had described what top level elite athletes were doing. And his observation was, hey, look at this. These athletes do most of, i.e. 75, 80% in this easy band, zone one, and a little bit in zone three, but they don't really spend any time in zone two. And that's where it came from. Yeah. So he's on that, Carl Foster's on that, a guy from Wisconsin, also one of the fathers of pacing strategy and uh, performance me- measurements and predictions in, in sports science, really, really good scientists. Then on the other side, arguing against polarized training, were guys, uh, Mark Burnley is also a very good, good follow on Twitter, Andrew Jones, who was involved in the sub two and the breaking two marathon attempts. And their argument is that this polarized model is in fact not a sorry a not what the elite athletes typically do and b not necessarily optimal and so this debate then kicks off and like many debates in this you know whenever you have debates about models you have people disagreeing over things that they actually don't even agree they've defined (laughs) um so you don't that oftentimes you read it and you think well actually they're disagreeing, but they're actually disagreeing about two separate issues. Two separate issues, yeah. And so actually, they're not disagreeing about as much as it appears. Can you give us an example of what you mean by that? Well, for example, yeah, I can actually. And it, and it brings us back to this this polarized versus pyramidal model. Foster and Silo in this paper talk about polarized and pyramidal. Because depending how you measure the training zones, you can have exactly the same training described as either one of those models. Because... If you, and I'll try and unpack this a little bit and tell me if I've lost lost you and not described it clearly. Let's say you're a runner now. We'll leave cycling because we always talk cycling. So let's for a change talk about running. Um, you, you can prescribe your training sessions by pace. Mm. I'm going to run an hour at five minutes a K, eight minutes a mile, whatever it is. You can describe your training sessions by heart rate. I'm going to run an hour at 145 to 150 beats per minute. Or you could describe it by rating of perceived exertion, one hour at six out of 10, okay? Depending which of those three measurement metrics you use, your training distribution can look quite different. 
a few years back, there was a study out of Australia. Uh, uh, let me check in the guy's name just so that I don't misattribute the study. Um, that what, and what this study basically did is they looked, they followed a group of people and they characterized their training zones, one, two, and three, mm. based on RPE, heart rate, or pace. It was a study by Philip Bellinger. And what they find is that when you do it by RPE, about a third of your time is zone one, a third of your time is two, and a third of the time is three. If you do it by heart rate, then you get a pyramidal distribution. Most of it, say 70 odd percent is in one, 20% in two, 10 in three. When you do it by pace, you get 70 odd percent in one, two or three in two, and a lot more in three. So, <laughs> so it actually, so then you've got a program that's both it's simultaneously polarized and pyramidal, yeah? Yes. So when you then argue this against someone who says they're not doing it in a polarized way, well, that depended on how Depending we, on what you're defining. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So yeah. Why, why is that? Let's just go through that quickly because how we monitor training is quite important. Good lesson for listeners. Rating of perceived exertion is quite a blunt tool. Mm. If, if you went out and you did a talk interval session or a track session or hill training, I would ask you once for your RPE for the day. You'd arrive home and I'd say, how was that? Nine out of 10. Because it's a hard day. Yeah. If you did that twice a week, two out of your six training days would be hard which is 33%. But within that nine out of 10, maybe it was a 45 minute long session, only six minutes of it were actually spent running hard. The rest yeah. of it was walking. Because <laughs> you were recovering in right. between, correct. So as far as pace goes, that session's nowhere near nine. Mm. And as far as heart rate goes, it's gonna have moments of very high heart rate, but a lot of the time quite low. Mm. And so perception of effort is blunt. Heart rate is lagging because if I do a one minute hard run, my heart rate isn't zone five for one minute or zone mm. three in this case. Mm. It's only there for 35 seconds. Because mm. you have to get up to that heart Correct. rate. Correct. So yeah. it, it, mm. it follows behind right. the pace. Mm. Whereas the entire one minute is done at pace zone three. Mm. So so depending, the, anyway, you get I'm laboring the point. That's why cycling is so good with power meters because immediately when you put down the pedal stroke, you know what your power is straight away and it's an absolute value. Right, but there's again, there's gonna be that same dissociation between power and heart rate. Yes. I did, in fact, I did it in preparation for this podcast a couple of weeks back, I did a talk interval session where each rep was two minutes long. Now, my heart rate over 10 reps of that, probably for 14 minutes was at zone four or five, high zone for me, right? Zone mm. top, let's call it highest zone. But the total effort in zone three was 20 minutes, the full session. Yes. But only 70% of it is reflected by the heart rate. Correct. Yeah. So if I measured that session by heart rate, I would interpret it to be moderate. Mm. If I measured it by perception of pain in my legs and by power output, yeah. it would be high. So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So this is an important concept. And that's why when we talk about monitoring load, we talk about internal monitoring, as in what's happening in the body. What's the heart rate, breathing rate? You could measure lactate. You could measure ventilation and gas exchange, whatever you want, okay? That's internal of the body. Mm -hmm. External load is power output or pace. It's what I'm doing and can be measured from outside. Mm. And then there's perceptual. How do I feel while doing this external load given the internal changes? Does this make sense? Yeah. So, and that's handy, right? Because if you go to altitude, you can run the same pace. It'll feel much harder and your heart rate will be a little bit higher. So mm. you want three points always of a triangle to triangulate what that whole thing mm. actually means. Mm. Two doesn't tell you because yeah. your heart rate could be higher. Your pace is the same. Well, what does that mean? It could mean one of two things. It's only when you add the third bit, which is your perception, mm. that you're able to anchor your 
context. So rate of perceived exertion is actually quite a good way of measuring because you often see, well, I don't have a heart rate monitor, I don't have a power meter, therefore I use RPE. But what you're saying is RPE becomes instrumental in that triumvirate of of data that you're getting. If if you use extent. it, if you use it within its known constraints, and yes. the constraint is that it's blunt. So the rating perceived exertion for a session yes. tells you nothing about the rating perceived exertion within the session. Yes, correct. Yeah. So again, if I was, no, that's good. That's good. Let's good say tip that actually. Let's say you were doing those hill repeats now, running or riding. I say to you, Mike, I want you to hit eight out of ten by the top of each of these hills, and by the tenth rep, well, we want it to be nine. Mm. Okay. Afterwards, you'll rate that as a eight or nine out of ten. Yeah. Right? Okay. So then, in that instance, RPE and effort are linked. But if I want you to mix and match pace a little bit, and I'll say, right, I want you at nine, and then in the recoveries, I want you at four or five. You see, then you can play. There's a lot more nuance on the dial. 100%. Yeah. So that's quite an important concept. So anyway, the point is that they then discuss, you know, is it polarized or is it pyramidal? Well, actually, depending how you measured it, it could be both. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one metric really captures what it looks like. Okay. But the principle is... And, and again, this is you said it in your introduction, and it's absolutely true. We want people to take from this the principles. The principles are that you, you're you trying to maximize your volume at the right intensities. You need to have fairly high volumes to get better. Like And endurance sport, which is what we're talking about here, is fundamentally aerobic. Mm. So your exposure to aerobic minutes is is hugely important. But so is your exposure to minutes at what we call threshold, and we still got to explore what these zones mean physiologically, and your exposure above threshold, your sort of severe exercise intensities. But if you overdo it on the top, then you compromise the bottom. Mm. So I think what's probably happened is that with tech and with knowledge about lactate thresholds and critical powers, FTPs, mean lactate, steady states, blah, 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 (laughs) people have said, right, I'm gonna train a little bit more on the hard end, because I've got to train race pace. I'm training for a 21K. I've got to be faster than that in half my training sessions. Fine, but then they probably compromise what they do below race pace as well because you just cannot deal with all the the Mm. training stimuli. Mm. Yeah. So we talked about uh, um, polarized training, we talked about pyramidal training. There's also threshold training. Right, there's there's threshold. Now, I suppose this in a way... Kind Just of to add more confusion. <laughs> in, yeah, in practice, threshold training often follows a pyramidal pattern where most of it is zone one, mm-hmm. then zone two, then zone three. But I would make a distinction because in threshold training, a very high proportion is in two. So, for example, there's one study that I saw, which was done out of Spain. We'll pop these in the show notes. We never do that, but we will this time, I promise. <laughs> where they compared polarized, which went 75% zone one, five zone two. Because, of course, you, you can never do nothing in zone yeah. two, right? Yeah. And 20 in zone three. So that's your classic polarized that's model. That's if you have three zones. That's right. a three-zone polarized model. Most in one, very little in two, some in three. Right. And then a threshold program over, over 10 weeks where they did 45% in one. Remember, that's compared to 75. 35 in two compared to five and 20 in three. So it is pyramidal. But it's very high on the middle step. Right. Makes sense? Okay. Which is kind of where a lot of us amateurs exercise. That's, yeah. And as I said in the intro, I think that's where we drift towards because, mm. uh, I mean, I certainly do because I just like the fact that I'm riding four times a week, five times a week. I like going hard. Mm. 
Mm. It's it's fun. It's mm. faster and more challenging. So mm. I would say, arguably, if I don't tr- force myself to slow down, that's where I end up mm. is 40, 30, 30 mm. <laughs> or 40, 40, 20 maybe. Mm. Yeah. So let's, let's jump to the, the latest research around mm. this space. What do we know now based on the latest science in terms of what is best because there are (laughs) it's a it's a very open question isn't it it's extremely open and that's why there's a debate Mm. Uh, so we know that when we analyze the practice of elite athletes they tend to look heavily polarized and pyramidal depending Mm. again on (laughs) the fine print we spoke about a few minutes ago so for example Elliot Kipchoge a typical race uh, a training week ahead of a marathon so this is in what would be called the general preparation phase right and arguably the greatest distance runner of our generation if not of any generation certainly at the marathon very difficult to find anyone who comes close actually yeah so he does 100 200 to 220k in a week which is high which is don't try that that's not the principle you yeah, follow but that's high mileage even for an elite runner yeah that's in fact that's typical of these mm. this study came out incidentally a couple of weeks back maybe a little longer than that now by thomas haug and stephen seiler being the third of four authors on this paper it's from sports medicine it's called the training characteristics of world-class distance runners an integration of scientific literature and results proven practice yeah We'll bomb it in the in the show notes, and so Kipchoge does about two hundred to two twenty a week in his preparation phase, and about eighty two to eighty four percent of that is done in the low intensity zone in a three zone system. So this is not when you talk about preparation phase. This is kind of it's not off season training, but it's building up to the season training. This it's is the base phase, what we used to call the base phase. Yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And so, what's Kipchoge running in the fall this year? He, he ran Tokyo. He's he's doing. Is it Chicago or New York? I think it's New York. In any event, this is what he'd be doing now in July, August. Right. And then as he goes into September, he goes into preparation. And I'll give you the numbers on that shortly. So 82% of the time is spent in zone one. Uh, 10% in two. And about 8% in in three. So that's that's pyramidal. (laughs) But it's not high on the threshold in, in the middle step, right? And then in the specific preparation phase... It all depends, as you said, that 8% yeah. in the yeah. top level. Is that just the intervals and not the rest period between the intervals? Well, so that, that, Okay, so it's interesting because they actually show you every day of the week in a typical week. And as we said, yeah, 8% of his time is in zone 3. Of his three. time, okay. Yeah. Um, well, 8% actually, of his time no, is of in his zone volume, zone volume. No, so it's his distance. Right. All time. <laughs> we're, right. being, we're being slippery here, but that's kind of the point, right? Uh, he does he does two runs a day most days. Um, Monday is two easy runs, zone one. Average pace, four minutes a K. Yeah, so, which is like, and it's, yeah, and it's tw- pedestrian. Tw- 20K in the morning and 10 to 12 in the afternoon. Okay. Oh, Tuesday is his sole track session of the week. And it's a it's a 12 to 15K interval training session. For example, 15 1,000s at 250 to 255 minutes per K, which is for him zone four in a in a seven zone speed session, mm-hmm. uh, speed block, with 90 seconds rest. So that's right. that's a classic so that distance would be runner's that's interval session. just pretty much his marathon pace was slightly slower, actually. It's, He's running a marathon at 250. Yeah, 250 to 255, so exactly marathon pace. Marathon pace, the, yeah. the, the fine print is this is done in Kenya, so it's at like 2,000 meters. Yeah. 
So, were so he to be slightly do, faster than marathon pace for him? Certainly will be faster than marathon intensity, intensity given yeah. that altitude. If he was running this session at sea level, he probably easily went to 240 to 245. Yeah. Okay. Then an easy run in the afternoon at 4.30 to 5 minutes a K where, I mean, most listeners could do that session with him. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> not 2,000 meters. <laughs> uh, Wednesday is very similar to Monday. Longish, easiest runs in zone one. So, I mean, you see that we've, we've gone from Monday through Wednesday, six sessions, and only one of them touches zone four. All the others are in zone one. Uh, Thursday is a 30 or 40K long run in zone two to three. So that's... And that's that's a seven zone system, right? So you, this stuff's dizzying. Actually, you've got to always <laughs> you always have to read the fine print. Um, that would still be in in a in a low intensity zone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, then Friday, very similar to Monday and Wednesday. Zone one doubles, morning and afternoon. And then Saturday is a fartlek session where you mix your pace. It's not structured in the same way as a track session, but achieves pretty much the same objective. And he would either do those with long intervals, like four times 10 minutes with a two-minute recovery. So he'll cover three to three and a half K in 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then or, or he does short intervals, like 25 times one minute. And in those 25 times one minute, he's going to be picking up way faster than marathon pace. So that's mm. the fastest session he would be doing in the week. Right. And then Saturday is... Sunday. So, so yeah. yeah, that was Saturday. Sunday is an easy, easiest run in the morning and he rests. So that's, you can see how sure, most of the time yeah. is spent in low intensity zones. Some spent high and not that much. Maybe one or two of those fartlek sessions, maybe a little bit of that long run towards the end, coming to the last three or four K, you pick it up into that middle zone, mm. but not much. And then interestingly, as the specific preparation period goes uh, or happens and we get closer to the marathon, the main changes are less volume. So 185 a week, not a huge difference, but some. Mm-hmm. Uh, 90% low intensity, so more in zone one. I was going to I was gonna say, let me guess what he did. And okay. I, I was going to yeah. say completely the opposite. Yeah. Less low volume and more intensity, but you, mm. you're saying it's the other way around. Yeah, more uh, low volume. Yeah, that's fascinating. Same high but almost nothing in the middle. Right. So anyone arguing in favor of polarized, and this is what, um, this is why Siler and Haugen put this week, these two weeks of training in there, is this is, this is classically what they're saying you do. Yeah. Is you don't get stuck in the middle. Now, this, <laughs> it gets interesting because there's a Norwegian model. And in fact, if you want to really dive deeply into this, there's a, there's a Norwegian runner called Marius Bakken, who was a 1305, 1306 guy really good runner in the day and now he's a doctor and so he understands a little bit the physiology and the technical side and he's got a website mariusbacken.com and he talks about we'll put about, it in the show notes shall we yes let's do that <laughs> um, who's going to remember you or me I will remember okay good I want to bug you for them yeah please do uh, he's got a and on that you'll find something called the Norwegian model and their model is actually quite high in threshold training and it's been popularized recently because uh, is it what's the what's the triathlon fella's name? Carsten Blumenthal, is that right? Yes, he does it. Uh, Ingebrigtsen's have been documented as doing this, and Backen himself obviously did it. And it's very high on zone two work, which is interesting. If you're using the three zone model, it's in, just in the three sure zone that. model. So it's the so, middle zone. Yeah, and in fact, mm. they would regularly every week do a, a a double day where they do threshold in the morning and threshold in the afternoon, hmm. and that's. Now you see that's quite different. That's not going to look like a chosen. Which for them would probably be 
I mean, let's just make it. I'm trying to figure out how we can put that into into words. For them, they are the Ingebrigtsens in particular, track runners, five, mm. ten thousand meters. That would probably be their threshold pace would be their ten thousand meter pace. Uh, yeah, probably even a little bit slower because, slower. and this is the key point. Again, like always, you have to read the fine print. The Norwegian model is that you don't, and maybe it was an oversight to not mention this earlier. Threshold training is what you would read in a magazine as a tempo run. You've you've probably said that in your mag. Yeah, I remember that from reading Runners World when I was it's still a teenager. <laughs> yeah, a tempo run is where you go out and you do thirty to forty minutes hard sustained work slightly slower than your 10k pace and you in that that would be classic zone two mm. it would be what you would describe as hard exercise but i manage it yeah um it's almost your best hour effort yeah a little bit a less maybe but mm. i mean because like a best hour for these elite runners is a is a half marathon and yeah. that's not a training session that's yeah. a that's a world-class <laughs> yes, race yes. um not something you do more than once every few months <laughs> so what what the I've lost my train of thought now. What was I saying? I think you're talking about the Norwegian model. Thank you. Yes, the Norwegian the, the, model. The, the, the variation that they introduce, and Backen explains this in, this in this website, is they don't do it continuously. So it's not a 35, 40-minute continuous run. It's five reps of six minutes each with a short mm. break in between. With recovery, yeah. Partly because they want to measure the lactate in that break because they're quite concerned about getting the lactate just right, which is the second part is they want that lactate level to be quite low. You know, most times you'd go out and you'd run your lactate threshold and you'd be quite happy to tolerate a fairly high level. They they want it to be just on the cusp, the low end of zone two. Mm. So, so okay, one minute de- deviation. Zone one is what you would describe as light or moderate exercise. It's the pace that you would speak to your mates at and have a fairly easy conversation about the meaning of life and not really be worried about anything. Mm. You're turning the pedals over, you're just turning the feet over, no worries at all. Zone two is where it becomes slightly harder to breathe, but you're not incapable of talking. So I can talk in stop-start sentences, ask you how your weekend was and get the answer 10 seconds later. Yeah. <laughs> right? And that's the intensity at which we can still achieve steady state, but mm. it just takes a little bit longer. So you know that feeling when you're cruising along in the flat, zone one, mm-hmm. light, Mm. suddenly the road goes uphill and for the first minute or two you start thinking crikey this is hard but after a couple of minutes you settle in you mm. get to the top that was a good controlled mm. effort mm. that's zone two right and what the norwegians are doing in this back and piece mm. is a lot of their interval work is five times six minutes with a couple of minutes rest at that kind of manageable intensity i think the mistake that would be made by most people again is to try and imitate the Norwegian concept, but go five times six minutes at a, almost at the top of zone two, almost at the point at which it starts to become that zone three. And then you've got a problem because then you're overdoing it within overdoing it. <laughs> right, yeah. okay. Yeah. So the subtleties are very important here. Mm. Yeah. So that, that's, so that's, that's that Norwegian, uh, Norwegian method. What, what is this? This paper that you referenced earlier on coming out to say, like, I mean, I, I read something briefly about it. They're talking about the fact that it is, it is um, suggesting that this idea around polarized training isn't the answer for endurance athletes. Essentially, right. now that we've defined what those models are, um, what is it saying then? What about what is the right model for endurance athletes then? Well, that's 
that's the key is that it doesn't really it doesn't say, it just tells it's, you what's wrong which is classic academia um, <laughs> it's like we debate Damn the theory it. and we never really arrive at the but again I, they don't disagree as much as it's portrayed that they disagree because i think in practice most people would recognize that there are constraints to how much time i can spend doing high intensity work yeah they you run the risk of injury and burnout if you do more than a few sessions a week. I mean, we saw Kipchoge's got really two days a week that he's pushing anything like hard. Three a week, mm. Kipchoge can't handle. Why do you think you can? <laughs> you know, mm. With your work and your family stress and all the other things in your life. He's taking six-hour naps in between his sessions. I mean, there, so, is, there, there is another element to this and that training principles suggest that if you're running hard all the time, when you need to do the intensity sessions, if you're doing the intensity sessions on legs that are tired, you're not going to get the best benefit from the intensity sessions. Correct. So by running easy, when you're supposed to run easy, it means those intensity sessions count more. You don't want to go into a track session or a fight leg session on exhausted legs because mm. you're essentially just wasting your time. Right, and that and that compromise of training works both ways. If I do too much of my hard stuff too hard, then I can't do easy miles because I'm just knackered. And if I do my easy stuff too hard, I can't do the hard stuff hard enough. So in actual fact, you compromise, if it's polarized, you compromise both poles by being wrong at the other pole. That makes sense. Yeah. Tricky, tricky there, but for sure. So, so like, let me give you, so this is in, this is in 10 world-class marathon runners and like, these are world-class. This is Bekele, Mebke Flezegi, uh, Abel Karui, Moses Mossop, Jeffrey Mutai, the aforementioned Kipchoge. These are good guys. These are world marathon winners. Yeah. Five weeks out from a marathon, 190k a week is the average. And 150 of that is in zone one. This is in a five zone model. So if we add zone one and two, it's 168 out of 190. That's comfortably in the 80% range is easy training. Zone three, 17 out of 190. That's single percentage figures. (laughs) And zone four and five, five Ks out of 190. (laughs) So that's what they're doing. It's quite difficult to argue against that being the way to go, given that enough people would have tried other methods and I'm a believer of like what almost you can call Darwinian training. If, if there was another way to do this, it would be done. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The only thing I would ask in this idea is I wish we could deal with an athlete that wasn't as genetically gifted right. as these athletes and then said, okay, let's say it's a you know, Southern European, um, which don't perform at the levels that the East Africans do, mm. who is a, are they better with this polarized training and things and have they improved as a result of polarized training or not? Whereas I, there's some argument to suggest that the aforementioned that you just mentioned there, no matter what they do, they're still going to be pretty good because of their physiology. And I don't know that that's got anything to do with being Kenyan or Southern European. I think it's just to be world class compared to not world class. Yeah, but there are some genetics (laughs) that the Eastern Europe, East Africans have maybe behind. There might be, and and you're right. And one of those might be altitude ancestry and being born 
And it's not just being born at altitude. It's the fact that your parents, theirs and theirs and theirs and theirs were all born there. And we had, we got some data on Elite Canyon showing that the ability to defend oxygenation to the brain is better in a Canyon athlete yeah. at the same level as a non-Canyon mm. athlete. So mm. they might, you're right, they might make the same performance in a slightly different way. Yeah. But I still think the bigger factor is the level of performer. And just, just to read for you there, the, the, the Kenyans are known to train more often in threshold than than the, the European athletes. And I'm reading from this paper is that um, tempo runs account for 20 to 30%, sorry, for approximately 20% of the total annual running volume in world-class Kenyan runners. Hmm. But they say that in the paper, but then when you look at the marathon runs, don't, you don't see that in the data. So it is quite a confusing space. Hmm. And yeah, the the... The debate is interesting, but it doesn't offer us an alternative that most people would stand behind and say, you know what, that's the better way to do this. Because the alternative- That's what we want. Right. The alternative- <laughs> well, me as a gymnast, I wanted you to say, Ross, because of this research now, how must I train it? Yeah. What you're saying and is, it still is not conclusive. Yeah, I mean, what, what, would, what could the alternative be? The alternative could be that I train a lot less, but I do a lot more at the high zones. But that doesn't, we know that doesn't work mm. because you just never ever acquire the aerobic conditioning that you need in order to then produce the performances over the 10K marathon, whatever mm. it is. Mm. So there's no doubt that the thread that runs through all endurance programs is a high volume, either time or distance, of training at those aerobic training intensities. You know, like as I say, 160 odd. Yeah. K a week of yeah. what we would call slow running. You're going to go out and yeah. run 240 for a 10K per K. You're going to go and run a 255 per K for a marathon. But your training's being done, most of it, way slower than that. Mm. Now, and that's I, quite I'll, an important principle. So if there is right, any no. ways of taking out from what they're doing, and mm. when you do have an opportunity as an amateur to run easier mm. there's no there's you're not losing benefit by running easier actually in right. fact you might be benefiting your training correct now there are some other fine prints here like so if if we look there there's a speed skater who won a couple of goals in in tokyo and i can redeem myself not tokyo beijing wrong olympics wrong season redeem myself by saying you're swedish not dutch i said i think <laughs> i might have messed that up the first time around yes. i was thinking of another Funderpool. the twitterverse got hold of you this for is that. right sorry <laughs> sorry kerry this is niels Funderpool, not mateo i might have been thinking the wrong guy the wrong <laughs> Funderpool. and he, he actually put his training online and you should read it because if nothing else it's just a fascinating quirky approach to training mm-hmm. for instance he's on a 5-2 schedule he trains monday to friday and nothing saturday sunday zero because he wants to have a normal life and go out with mates and sleep in. And, and he's so a world-class speed skater. He's, he's a double Olympic champion. Yeah. So we're also, I mean, we're also on a 5-2. We rest for five days and then train <laughs> on the weekends. But he does it the other way around. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, an enormous proportion of his training, especially in his aerobic phase, is done on the bicycle. Now, that's not uncommon. We know that speed skaters often spend some time on the bike. But this this guy spends a huge volume, 30 hours a week plus which is all done between Monday and Friday, right? So it's five five rides a week, 30 hours a week plus. So he's doing seven-hour rides. See, this makes no sense to me. I mean, it's not, is it similar muscles that they use in speed skating? Yeah, it's similar muscles, but really what it is is similar metabolism. Because the principle is he's just, he's just building an aerobic engine that is just enormous. That's what he's doing. 
And do we know what intensity is riding those bike rides at? Very low. Those is that's definitely but speed skating that's is all in zone high intensity. One. Exactly. Exactly. That's okay. all in zone one and two. So for months in his aerobic phase, this is all he's doing. He's on the bike for 30, 35 hours a week, cruising along at 200 watts, I think it is, which is okay. That's faster than most people could do for an hour, never mind every day for 33 yeah. hours in a week. But he's in a world-class athlete. Then he, then he finishes, and he does other things, like he enters a three-day running race. He does a 100-mile running event just because... He's just an aerobic monster is, mm-hmm. is the point. And you see that in the training. Then he goes into what he calls his threshold season, where every single day for 10 weeks, he just does threshold work. And these are ridiculous training sessions. You and this go, is in speed skating? Or the, no, this is, this is on the bicycle. Okay. Again, it's on the bike. He doesn't get onto the ice except for a few, <laughs> tiny, tiny percentage. I'd be surprised if 2% of his training is on the ice. It's amazing. Talk You'll about see him in the Tour de France in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. So here's here's a threshold session. This is done on five consecutive days for ten weeks. Right. <laughs> I mean that's that's not what you would read about in a polo astronomical training. That's thing. hard. Yeah. Exactly. And what he basically does is he rides them at what is his threshold. So that's in the range of five watts a kilogram. So now this is watts. So this yeah. is big, big power. An example is a five minute warm up at two hundred watts. Then six minutes at 260, just to get the engine warmed up. And then 20-minute blocks times five at 405 watts with four minutes rest. And then three hours at 220. I mean, that's that's, that's huge. That's an unbelievable session. I don't think there's many cyclists that would manage that professional riders. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So he's probably doing that just under his FTP. Mm. So he's, he's still in what we would describe like the top end of zone two. Okay. But so he's not he's not above critical power because then he'd never finish that session. Mm. He's below it, but he's on the high end of right on the edge of it though. He's, so he's, at best you can say smack bang in that threshold zone, zone two, right? <laughs> and it's every day of that for ten weeks. I mean it's unbelievable that he does that. Um that's from the beginning of August he does that. It's just and it's twenty five hours a week of exclusively threshold training. Then he goes back into an aerobic base. So he never goes into a high intensity phase. Hardly ever. He gets on the ice and he does some it's high intensity. It's either easy or work. threshold. Yeah, yeah. So there. Now you see that's a completely different model. So that's why there are people who listen to this and say, "Well, the polarized model is not necessary. It's what they do, mm. but a lot of it's practically constrained. You know, it's just especially for runners. You cannot run more than ten, fifteen k's a week." what you'd call a severe high intensity because the mechanical load at those speeds is also so high, you're going to get injured. Mm. And if you did that, then you couldn't do the low, the low volume stuff. So Niels van der Poel, for instance, he would never be able to do that threshold block without the aerobic block preceding it because that aerobic block is just creating in him so much resilience for that stress that he can handle it. Mm. And that's the point. You have to earn the right to do it. Mm. So that's probably the other mm. key takeaway or principle in, in this process, you know. So you can use that above critical power or critical speed very sparingly. It doesn't seem to compromise performance. Now, again, fine print. If you're a 5K, 10K runner and you're going to be going out and running, it's relative, of course, 230 a K if you're chasing a world record or five minutes a K if you're chasing a PB, you probably want to practice a little bit at those intensities. Mm. just for the neuromuscular um, the coordination yeah. required. But you don't have to spend 20% of your training week at race pace. That's the point. Mm. <laughs> According to Van der Poel, you don't even spend two minutes a week at race yeah. pace. 
And they, I mean, they, I think that's, what's important to take out from that is that they, we can practically do that even as amateur riders, as long as everybody agrees on the Saturday morning ride, mm. that's what's going to happen. Mm. But I think a lot of people, and you said it right at the start of this conversation as, as we wrap up now, but it, it, it is about we, this constant need that unless you're killing yourself and punishing yourself, you're not going to get better. What we know is that the top athletes in the world do not do that. Mm. They get better by consistency and by training easy when they need to train easy, which is most of the time, and training hard when it matters. Yeah. And they recognize that that their that their performance is a function of their aerobic capabilities. And and, and this is where again I'm adding in a little bit of like nuances. It's also a function of their ability to sustain a high speed or a high percentage of max for a long time. So VO2 max absolutely matters. But what's really important is can I go at 85% of that VO2 max for long enough to be competitive against the people that I want to be competitive against. Yeah. So you first build the aerobic base, the engine. You put the foundation in place. Then the threshold training starts to come in because that's where you train at or near that critical power, at or near FTP. But you use it very sparingly. You earn the right to train there and then you use it. And then you do a very small proportion of your training mm. Above that, I like the idea I, of earning your right. That's, I don't. Yeah, yeah, it's really handy to always yeah. think about this. Have I earned the right to do five days of riding this week? No. Well, that's why you had a knee injury. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or whatever the case is. So, so the, but but I'm I'm a big fan actually of threshold work. I like it doing it. It's mm. cool. I love that. Mm. I like the sensation of this is hard, but I've got it under control. Mm. It's cool. It's a nice is, feeling. And I don't want people to take from this that they should neglect it because, in fact, the elite athletes do do it. But they do it at a low enough intensity that it is controlled. I think the one – if I'm – having read on this the last few days and, and thought about it over the last while, the, 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 the most significant change I could make to my training is when I'm going hard, don't go quite as hard. Mm. Like spend a bit – just drop it back by 5% and be sure that I'm not creeping into zone 3, that I stay in zone 2 when I need to, so that when I want to do a zone three, I can really go high in zone three. And that's the the key. So, And then the final practical thing is one exercise for you to do, if you're quite serious about performance, is at the start of your week, make some predictions about what kind of intensity zones you're going to spend your week in. So say, okay, I'm going to do my morning ride before work with my mates, and I'm going to say 75, 1, 22, 5, 3, and then see if you're right. Because you'd be surprised, actually. Sometimes the mismatch between what you expect and what happens mm. will be the thing that unlocks where you're stuck. So that would be my f- single biggest advice is predict and then assess. And you'll probably find that you're creeping either too high or not high enough. And that's where you can make And by predicting, you're also maybe planning those sessions that you need to plan mm. in more of, those easier sessions. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And again, remember, if you're... Making that prediction based on RPE is going to make different outcomes compared mm. to if that prediction is based on the power output or the speed compared to the heart rate. And have a look and see which of those you feel yeah. best gives you an understanding of your own training and how well am I adapting to training? Do I need to prioritize recovery before the weekend or is it after the weekend? You'll learn by asking questions all the time. And you, you always the best question is the one you make by making a forecast and then assessing against your forecast so mm. that's what you do but yeah uh, in conclusion I think I think a pyramidal model is probably where most people can compromise mm. the elites can go uh, polarized 
we we can't always do that and so pyramidal is not the worst thing in the world but just don't slaughter yourself in zone three too much that's yeah. all mm. yeah. great advice and don't forget you can participate in the debates and our discussions on our twitter feed which is sports sidepod of course ross is on the twitter very active on that channel as well if you'd like to uh, engage with him and uh, share your views on your training we're always very interested to hear um people who have different ideas about training and what they've learned through their own experiences uh, athletes um particularly amateurs not necessarily just professionals but uh, for now it's uh, from us it's goodbye Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.